existence In existence, join the resistance Come on, let's start by talking tactics Have a pass and match us Here's how we practice Hey everybody, welcome to Pop Culture Continuum, this is John Elliott. This is Patrick Riccardi. And this week we have our guest, hello guest. Hello. Peter Perez. Hi. Another uh, another one of my co-workers, and uh, as big a music geek as I am, if not more. Mm, we're definitely on par with each other, I think. I think you're, uh, you're, you were definitely more of an Anglophile, and, in the 80s at least, and I was more like American indie underground stuff. That's yeah. That's probably spot on. Um, but I was actually surprised, Peter, because uh, that you picked these two albums because these are these are later year Warner Brothers albums from REM, and I had assumed you'd be all about the uh, IRS stuff. But you actually like both these albums? Um. Well, I don't know if I could simply say that I like both. Um, I would say that. I liked one of them greatly in the time that it was released, uh, and I'll talk about that more in detail. And then the other one sort of took me aback, and uh, I, I kind of just—I dis- I would say—I very unfairly dismissed it in its time. And having revisited it for this conversation, um, gosh, it's—I have a revisionism to talk about. Yeah, that—that's <laughs> happened with almost everybody we've talked to on this series um, when we've got, because I've dismissed plenty of their stuff too. And it is interesting going back now and seeing how, how much better the stuff is than you'd thought originally. Yeah. But um, okay. So this is something we've been doing with our guests on the REM podcast. When, what's your history with them? When did you first get into REM? Oh gosh. I mean, it's sort of interesting because I was lucky in that I grew up, out near New York City, and I used to listen to a, rec- a radio station religiously, WNYU, which is NYU's um, college radio station, and they always played really great music. It was not eclectic format like Calyx here in the Bay Area, but you know they really played like punk and hardcore and indie, you know, jangly pop music. So I I, I heard. Radio Free Europe in 1981. I guess that's the year it came out. I think that's yeah, right. the original single. Um, yeah, yeah. And I heard Chronic Town. I remember my friend Ellen buying Chronic Town at uh, Disco Mat, and you know I liked it. I really liked actually. I really liked Radio Free Europe, but um, I didn't really delve too deeply into the rest of that EP for whatever bizarre reason. I absolutely adore that EP at this point in my life. Um, so, you know, then the album came out, Murmur came out, um, and, you know, I, again, she, my, the same friend bought that album, and I didn't, for some reason, just did not, I did not, like, pay close attention to it, I think, because I was in the throes of major, sort of, like, new romantic Brit love already, I mean, I was already, at that point, into Susie and The Cure and um, Echo and the Bunny know, Man. Bauhaus, Echo and the Bunny Man. Oh my God. I mean, and you know, I liked, I mean, I will admit, I liked Duran Duran. I liked a lot of like the new romantic y stuff, a lot of which is absolute crap um, in retrospect. So REM was sort of like me, you know, I like dipping into the REM waters pretty lightly initially. And, and then when, um, um, oh my God, Reckoning came out, that's the, 
second album, right? Yep. Um, with the Harold Finster painting on it, which is so freaking cool. South Central Rain being the big song, like on, you know, college radio, indie radio. They played it to death. And I was like, oh my God, this is so fucking annoying. Like this whiny <laughs> vocal. Like it really made me crazy. And I was like, I hate R.E.M. Oh, I can't, I can't stand them. Like I was really, you know, it was like very like black and white back in the day too. Of where, course. You know, you had your affiliations to certain you know, groups pop culturally. So of course, like REM are like wimpy and stupid, which is funny because you know I also like like Visage and like <laughs> Soft Cell. So explain that to me. But um, I, I just thought they were kind of like a little too uh, mainstream as far as what whatever was wasn't really. I don't even ever really was called indie rock at that time. Um, we called so it college rock. I remember. College rock. Yeah. It's totally true. That was really what it was. It was college rock. I mean, it was new wave. I mean, poor REM were lumped into new wave. They were at the sort of in the the dying stages of new wave really still being used as a way to describe music that wasn't like, you know, three chord punk rock. Um, Right. Even though it was influenced by punk in certain ways. Of course. So, yeah, REM, yeah, I had a weird path with them. And then by, and then I'm almost to the end of my path. Then by the time um, Fables of the Reconstruction came out, um, or Reconstruction of the Fables, um, I I sort of got them. Like I was like, wow, they're actually a really interesting band. And I feel like that album like jumped their creativity in a huge way. I mean, even though I, I really do love all the IRS albums, I really went back in a major way to them and really got deeply into them. Um, because I also liked a lot of stuff that you really love, John, like the DBs and, you know, um, some of the, like, you know, jangly American music of its time. Yeah, yeah. So wonderful. The bongos. I mean, I loved that group, too. Oh, yeah. And, Number with Wings. Yeah, Numbers with Wings. Oh, my God. Great song. Um, so by the third album, I got them. And then I sort of went backwards. That's, uh, that's strange because I, I feel like uh, from people we talked to most people had a problem with fables although now it's one of my favorites um initially when it came out but I, yeah yeah i under i mean i remember that i remember people being like oh my god what the fuck is he singing and it's so <laughs> incomprehensible but i think that i mean and to be really uber pretentious in terms of like the music i was loving by that point i guess like i was starting to get into the cocktail twins i mean of course they've always been thrown in even though they're musically totally divergent from one another the whole thing with Elizabeth Fraser not singing. Really. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and Michael Stipe, quote-unquote, not singing or making up things or just being stream of consciousness. So I think that that um, sort of, like, opaque kind of weirdness, like, I really, I was like, wow, I think they're really interesting now. Like, you know, even though the first two albums, I think, have a lot of those elements, they're still very jangly, you know, cool birds-influenced you know, beautiful, that's really beautiful pop music. Um, that album, you know, Reconstruction of the Fables, whatever you want to call it, because you could, of course, look at that album cover in two different ways. Right. Back in the day, we could do that. Um, it just was weird. It was a weird album. Like, I think the production's weird, and the lyrics that are discernible, and the song titles, like, I found it really kind of just intriguing. Yeah, yeah well, I think even though even if you go back to like murmur or well chronic town too. Um, but like if you listen to like nine to nine, there's some wire and gang of four 
oh, yeah. elements going on in there even that early. Um, yeah, we talk. I think uh, I think Murmur and and Reckoning are pretty flawless albums at this point. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, cool. And Pat, we know you got into REM right around this time. Yep. Right. Out, I mean, I'd heard the earlier stuff, but I didn't listen to it over and over like I did Out of Time. Out of Time was probably the first album I bought and listened to every day for months on on end. Wow. Well, it was eighth grade. Yeah, yeah, that's a perfect time. Um, the we've also been doing this, Peter. So we've been looking at the the charts, the Billboard charts for the years these albums came out, and so for Out of Time '91. Uh, according to the film on Nirvana, 1991 was the year punk broke. But uh, looking at the charts, you wouldn't you wouldn't know it. Uh, Nirvana actually doesn't even make the 91 list at all. Um, but so let's let's do some comparison. This is the first time in this series that REM has made the top 100 uh, with obviously with losing my religion. Um, but number one for the year was Everything I Do I Do It for You by Brian Adams. Number two, I Want to Sex You Up by Color Me Bad. Uh, Gonna Make You Sweat, Everybody Dance Now, CNC Music Factory. Rush, Rush, Paula Abdul. I don't even fucking know that song. I remember that song. Um, Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) You've got Unbelievable by EMF. Ooh, yeah. Wow. You could not escape that song that year. Nope. No, everywhere. Yeah, that was our our full-on super stupid pop version of like e-music you know of like madchester music. yeah yeah that was that was the uh i'm trying to think the pat boone of uh manchester yes, music yes. yeah uh more than words extreme um i don't know some of these high five I don't remember that i don't remember thank god oh it's yeah it's horrible uh amy grant made the top 10 baby baby baby, baby. yeah boys to men with Motown Philly, don't know it. I remember that. Uh, Mariah Carey, someday. So, you get an idea. Um, it was not. Oh, here, uh, right here, right now. Jesus Jones. <laughs> Another <laughs> Manchester, like you know, light, light pop version of stupidity. I remember I, both those songs, unbelievable, and the Jesus Jones song got played on 120 minutes. Oh yes. Oh yeah. The, yeah. That was... I remember. And right here, right now, had the video of the Berlin Wall being taken down. Yeah. I remember footage of that. If I remember correctly, well, Peter, you weren't in this area, but uh, Live 105, the radio station here, used to be very cool uh, college rock back in the day. And uh, I remember this was about the time it started all going to shit with the uh, the EMF and Jesus Jones and stuff coming in. Mm-hmm. And of course now it's like Nickelback and stuff. But uh, well, REM makes the list at number thirty-three for the year, which is a pretty high standing. Um, still beat out by Roxette, though. So I don't think I'm surprised. Is it losing my? That's losing my religion. Yeah. I'm surprised that wasn't higher. I remember hearing that. Well, of course, I was playing it all the time, but I remember being on MTV all the time. It was on all the time, yeah. Yeah, well, R.E.M. never had a number one single in their entire career either. I had assumed that Losing My Religion went to number one, uh, but it actually only went to number four. Huh. And I think, and that was their highest scoring. Actually, that, that was their last top ten hit. In Well, Shiny Happy People went, right. went to number ten. But uh, that was it. Um, That's incredible. 
Yeah. Was the Roxette song the look, by the way? I just wanted to... It was not the look. Um, sorry, let me go back to it. Roxette's song was... Some Joy Joyride. I don't know that one either. Wow. Yeah, very different music. REM was sort of like this incredible subversive element in that mix. Yeah, they really were. And I, I at that point, yeah. I think a lot of people um, consider. Oh, they made the Shiny Happy People is actually the number one hundred song of the year. So they made the list twice. Um, they they really were, and people will always throw around accusations of selling out. But I, even at this point, I think REM were still doing. It was a natural progression from what they'd always done. Um, but let's get so let's get into out of time because re-listening to it, uh, aside from a couple really stupid uh, pieces of crap, <laughs> I think it was it's it's an even better album than I remember it being. It's pretty fabulous. And it, it's as good as I remember, and I loved it then, so I'm glad it holds up. Yeah, it really. I, I think it's got to be one of the few albums of the last... Jeez, what is... It came out 24, 23 years ago. Um, in that in that period, one of the few that was uh, a commercial success that's actually good. 100% agree, I have to say. With, the, with basically the same opinion about one or two songs, John, that you're already alluding to. Yeah. Do not age very well, or one of them really didn't age well. Um, that song, let's just say it is radio song. Yes. Um, you know, it's uh, definitely of its time where rap and rock had to be together. Yeah. I mean, they were, they were setting, doing that. Setting the groundwork for that rock rap genre that we all love. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. It was, yeah, it I have to say, it. Um, well, this is the the first song we'll we'll be listening to. Uh, we we're gonna have another guest. They couldn't make it, uh, but we're gonna go with her picks anyway. And this is her pick. And I assume that she was going to talk about exactly how uh, it does not hold up. But um, it when I when I first heard a radio song, like when it starts with the the world is collapsing around our ears and the music there, I thought, oh, this is really cool. And then it just kind of goes into a place. It goes into the exact wrong place. Like it could have gone in a million different directions, and it and they picked the worst one. Yeah, it starts like minor key REM, which is like my favorite REM. Same kind of yeah. stuff, you know. Like makes me think of stuff from the first album, and then of course, you know, Karis One. You know, he's obviously a very talented person. Um, it's totally misguided. It comes off now. Even then, it did. I mean, I really remember thinking then it was goofy and like trying too hard to integrate this element into their music and i was like oh my god this is like i'm embarrassed for them and of course (laughs) (laughs) luckily song two which you know on first listening listening to not to go off too far into losing my religion um was like jaw dropping like that was like such a spectacularly different yet REM-esque song for them that it like kind of made you forget about radio song like okay I'm gonna I'm gonna hit the CD player and skip the first track I will get up because my remote control isn't working right now and I will go touch my Pioneer 5 disc CD player that's so cool in this moment in time and get the hell out of radio song yeah yeah well I remember Losing My Religion was released as a single prior to the album and 
Um, I think I talked about this a little before on the show, but I remember thinking, this is a really good song, but why the fuck do they think this is the right song for a single? This isn't going to go anywhere on the charts. And yeah. and I was completely wrong. Um, but I, I just remember thinking, because the previous album, they'd released Orange Crush as their first single, which I also thought at the time, well, this is this is a weird one, but... I think they've both actually, over time, held up as good choices. Yeah, I hadn't... The only time I'd listened to Losing My Religion recently was when they had that YouTube version where they changed it to a major key. Have you guys heard that? Oh, yeah. 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 So I hadn't really listened to it for like all the way through for a long time, and I was really happy listening to it. That it's, it, it really, really holds up. It's, a, it's an awesome song. It holds up, and yet you don't need to listen to it that often because we've all heard it a billion times. Well, right, yeah. And, and tell me if you both recall this, because, of course, this was the glory days of MTV and I'm actually showing music videos in 120 minutes. And, you know, I totally would make my time to go watch a video premiere. Did the video of Losing My Religion premiere at the same time as they released the single? Like I kind of or before the single, like, you know, officially was for sale. Shit, that's a that is a good question. Um let me see if I can find out. The single was released on February 19th, 91. Let me see if they've got their video stuff on here. Music videos. Um, oh, it, it just gives me the uh, the director's name, but doesn't give right. the exact date. So it's right. possible. I remember the video premiere. Yeah, yeah and, it was a big deal. Yeah, because Michael Stipe actually appeared in it. Yeah, and it was all based on um, Derek Jarman. Uh, stuff. It was based on Derek Jarman's film Caravaggio, which is, which this was also like one of the big moments to go off into this corner of the, maybe other people haven't really talked about this and it has nothing to do with the fact that I am a gay man, um, where it was very overt that Michael Stipe was starting to kind of be more open about his being a gay man. Yeah, it's very homoerotic video. Very lightly, <laughs> um, and if you if you go back and see the the Derek Jarman film, I mean, it's basically creating live versions of the, these Caravaggio paintings, which were very homoerotic and very you know controversial in their time. But of course, he's, Caravaggio is considered one of the greatest artists of you know Western art. Um, Michael was definitely getting into. Uh, exploring that and and showing it off which was to me was like wow he has balls it's a song about like you know rejecting religion and he's throwing in like all this like gay stuff god rem have become so interesting even more interesting it was just very shocking i was very shocked by it yeah happy by it i i mean i'm not a gay man and i still pop a b watching that video yeah Uh, (laughs) i i have not seen caravaggio uh all i've the only Derek Jarman I've seen is Jubilee. Right. And, and uh, yeah. have you seen, what What was his last one? Blue? Is that what it was yeah. called? Is, I heard that's really good. It's incredible. It's very depressing and incredible. And of course, you know, Jarman did all these wonderful um, Pet Shop Boys videos. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, you're, I think you're right, Pat, that, that when I listen to Losing My Religion now, uh, more than other songs that are totally played out, I, I can still, uh, it still sounds like it has integrity and I, I can appreciate it. And it wasn't written to be played over and over again, but it happened to be played over and over again. <laughs> right. As I said, it was just a weird, a weird single to pick and then a weird single for the public to relate to. 
But similarly, I mean, I don't know if it's actually uh, specifically about religion, but but the same thing happened with uh, Dear God from XTC, which is a bizarre song to become a hit in America, especially at that time. Yeah, majorly strange. I'd also say that Losing My Religion is probably the most played song ever in the history of the world that features the mandolin. I would agree. Yeah, it has to be. Yeah. I don't know. The Middle Ages probably had a lot of songs that it's got played over sleeves. and over. Green sleeves, you're right, yeah. <laughs> but uh, radio song, yeah, uh, I agree with you, um, Peter, that that beginning, just the, the classic REM sounding melody, and then they go into their version of a funk song, mm-hmm. I guess. Yes. I wonder what it, what it sounded like when they didn't have KRS-One on it. Yeah, I was just thinking the same. If there's a if there's an edited splice version that removes the KRS one vocal and sections. Well, even without KRS one, though, I think uh, that choice of music is not really. It doesn't work for REM. The when it gets to the you know I got to the show, yo ho ho, that that whole <laughs> kind of funny. It is weird too. I think I once heard someone say something that it was like. Um, REM's sort of really delayed lame response or not response um sort of in the influence of um panic from the smiths where it's also like you know it's a song that is about hating you know the the kind of dumbed down popular you know music that just gets played and that people just consume i mean that really obviously it's what the song is about right corporate rock sucks and you know pop music programming sucking and how that was still obviously part of the reality of being a music listener. If you, if you wanted to hear music, you had to listen to the radio to some degree. Um, but anyway, that's maybe probably intellectualizing it. No, I think, I mean, I think it's obviously that's what it's about. It's just a, uh, and I agree with the sentiment. It's just a shame that, uh, the song, uh, sucks so hard. Yeah. Yeah. But well, let's uh, let's play it for people. If you don't know the song we're talking about, uh, you can make up your own mind. Um, here is radio song from R.E.M. All right. Um, I don't hate that much as you two, but I definitely wish it wasn't the first song on that album because it is definitely the worst, and the KRS One doesn't help it at all. No, and it's I I had liked uh, I liked KRS One at that point because um, you know I was I had I was 
coming from my like indie music and and trying to be uh, more open-minded and listen to more hip-hop so i had like there were acts i liked at that point like uh de la soul and and uh the beastie boys and public enemy and and i heard probably read a review somewhere of krs1 uh, boogie down Productions. so i i got his album and i really liked it and and so i when i saw that he was on it i was like oh this might be cool but uh no <laughs> has there ever been like a good combination of, of rock and hip-hop that worked out real well not to my knowledge i'm searching my memory bank and i'm coming up with nothing no, I mean maybe. Oh, Iro Smith and Run DMC is the best. That's that's the one I was gonna say. Yeah, and that's that's the yeah. Best. Because and that's the just... video's so like over the top, campy, and ridiculous too. Yeah, and and it was uh, it was the first instance of that, and uh, and it was more that Run DMC was combining with Aerosmith, and not the other way around. It wasn't. It was like Run DMC was inviting Aerosmith in instead of Aerosmith inviting Run Run DMC in. Like KRS is own this but he's not really a big part of it like run dmc is yeah yeah, yeah. and run dmc could do everything perfect so <laughs> yeah totally well you're well you before, be illin john i i do be illin um <laughs> the uh before we go to your song peter i i because there's re-listening to this album i was just surprised at how how strong a lot of it is even uh they've got a couple uh definite pet sounds beach boys homages for the first time i think on this album with uh near wild heaven and uh even endgame which is mm-hmm. k- kind of an instrumental it's got michael stipe doing la la laws um <laughs> but th- they those both work really well the whole album has kind of got a baroque feel very much yeah um more more interesting as far as arrangements uh than anything they'd done before and and even kind of throwaway songs like uh belong and texarkana are really nice to listen yeah. to yeah yeah I, I mean why do you call them throwaway just I because love we... texarkana <laughs> i don't know why i call them throw they weren't really like live staples or anything at any oh point. Yeah, yeah yeah um and yeah, I love Texarkana too, and I like uh, I just like the we've talked about a lot on this on this series. Um, the vocal blend of Michael Stipe and Mike Mills on uh, "Belong" is really. I always like them singing together. Yeah, beautiful voices together, sort of crazy, suited for each other. And and "Belong" has the him talking right. That's like, yeah, I like that it's talking just... in the verses, and then the the chorus is just whoa, 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 yeah. Yeah, and uh, uh, one of the band's favorite songs, um, which I did not care for initially, um, but I really have grown to like now, is uh, Country Feedback. Oh yeah, that's a great song. I think that may be my second favorite song on the album, after Low. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like they're actually very much like sort of compatible. Like It's weird that they're both... This, um, they sit in, in places on the album where... I just feel like they, they sequenced it so perfectly. They really did, yeah. And Country even, Feedback is such a desperate song. It's, his, his voice is so, I don't know, just like pleading in that song. I really, yeah, it's a fun song. Yeah, it's kind of like they're uh, unsatisfied by the replacements. Um, and, and Me and Honey, uh, the last song, I really like a lot too. It's just kind of like a, 
a '60s garage pop yeah thing. Kind of psychedelic. It's pretty psychedelic. Yeah, mm-hmm. with good Kate Pearson vocals. Uh, speaking of which, let's talk about the other horrible song on this album, which I love. Do I you? Love then I love now. You know what? And I would say honestly, like in the moment of this album coming out, and I'm holding my CD that I've owned, I guess, for 24 years of this <laughs> album. Um, I thought it was a really sweet song. Like before it became played to death on par with Love Shack. Um, <laughs> funny enough, this was really like the right the B52s uh, moment of rediscovery and mega popularity. Um, I thought it was really sweet initially, and I haven't heard it in a long time, and I avoided it when I re-listened to this album because I just couldn't I couldn't do it. Um, but I think it is a sweet pop song, and it's sad that it is. Yeah, I I find it unlistenable at this point. Yeah, I do. I do too. And I think I read that Peter Buck um, wrote the music kind of as a joke, um, <laughs> and then but then of course Michael Stipe uh, decided to run with it, and and uh, I think it's well. I talked about the Beach Boys with some of the other influences. This is more like I don't know something like the Association or the Free Design, like very. Uh, well, you just can't. It's the lyrics, I think. You know, you can't get it. Maybe musically, if it was something else, um, I, I could appreciate it more because it, again, has that kind of baroque feel and and the '60s breezy pop sound. But uh, if I if I thought even that he was being um, ironic with it, I might appreciate it more. But I yeah, I can't. And well, Wikipedia says on an episode of Space Coast Coast to Coast, Michael Stipe said in reference to the song, "I hate that song." So he agrees with you guys. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's one of those songs that's so sickly sweet. I mean, I think it's totally earnest. It's not tongue in cheek at all, right? Like, it's, there's no, maybe there is a funny irony to the, the, the title is so optimistic that it's just hard to believe it's real. But um, it's sort of, I, I, when I listen, when I think about listening to it in my head, because I cannot play it, it makes me think of, um, which I adore their cover of Superman the hidden track. Um, so it's funny, like Superman is, um, a really sweet, silly throwaway pop song, you know, sixties pop song that they did a really reverent cover of it. But it, it's funny that it's so silly, the lyrics that it isn't unlistenable. Right. Oh no, not at all. It's so funny, but it's not that far removed musically when you think about it. No, in terms of the type of pop song it is. I suppose. No, I suppose you're right. Yeah. Uh, what I uh, like to do is get little kids into a room and play "Shiny Happy People," and right after it, everybody hurts and watch their heads explode. <laughs> <laughs> that well, would be beautiful. Yeah, we, children's head exploding, heads exploding is always beautiful. Uh, "Shiny Happy People," by the way, is the song. I don't think we mentioned, uh, but I don't know how anybody could have not understood what we were talking about. Oh, I thought we were talking about furry happy uh, monsters. Oh, the Sesame Street version. I'm I'm okay with that when it's uh when it's for kids. Um, well, but let's go to your song, Peter. This was another one that initially um I didn't care for, but have grown to like. And especially re-listening to it for this album, I was like, oh, there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on in this song. There's dynamics and like that very cool. I don't know what it is, a cello or something. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, low was your pick. So yeah, why don't you? talk about that a little bit uh, so you know the other thing that was really interesting about when this album was released um maybe it wasn't i don't know how long you'd have to look this up john how long it was between the album being released 
the you know losing my religion video being played to death and then they actually did all these other videos for songs that weren't going to be singles ever they just did it was a very artsy moment obviously they're on warner brothers their album before was so successful they had cash to play with um and they made this video compilation that was called this film is on which was pretty much all about this time was stuff from this time period and one of the videos was for low and i was like oh my god how bizarre that they chose this song to make a video out of i'm so intrigued i cannot wait to see this and it's definitely to me the most amazing rem video and there's a lot of actually incredible rem videos i think you'll both agree i mean i do agree they have an they did really definitely had a very like spot on artistic sensibility and um it was never stupid like they really identified artists that would become the cover the, the cover artists of out of time i mean the star twins are hugely successful art they were becoming at this time but they're you know they did the rooftop installation of the metropolitan museum of art garden like maybe it was two or three years ago um they're huge name artists but the point i'm getting at is low before i talk about the song the video you need to go watch this video if you have not seen it or you don't remember what it's like. I don't remember it, yeah. It's, it's yeah. a really, really um, gorgeous, weird, bizarre video that is the... sounds because it sound really cheesy describing it. Um, it's a painting that's in the Museum of Art, Georgia Museum of Art, that is um, painted by a woman in the late 19th century. It's very much in the style of, like, French romantic academic painting um it reminds me of this artist i was really really a total art freak at the time more so than now even art history freak and it's um it looks like bouguereau who was a very famous french academic artist la 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 it's a painting that comes to life and that sounds really cheesy but it is done so well and given that you know i'm sure they didn't have a million dollar budget or even a hundred thousand dollar budget i would guess um, you need to go look at this video because it sort of is the perfect example of a music video not being stupidly referencing of the song or the song, you know, either way. So, of course, I was like, oh, my God, R.E.M. are so fucking cool. Like, I can't believe, like, they're this famous and popular at this point and that they can still do this and pull it off, like, and still be artsy and weird and not linear. Like, I thought that was what was so incredible to think that now like we understand everything michael's singing and he's singing really clearly and the production is like flawless and beautiful i mean this album sounds amazing still and low like you said john like has all these really intriguing elements like the organ in it and i will say that maybe not right in the moment but over time that song really started like i was like what does this song remind me of and it reminds me of my favorite maybe my favorite one or two three but one of my favorite two bands in the world wire who you know rem covered and you know disparagingly covered um strange um it reminds me of two songs from 154 uh that are both um graham lewis songs the other window and um a touching display oh a touching display yeah. yeah i mean it really reminds me of a touching display and maybe i am totally again Reading into it, obviously, we know R.E.M. really loved or loved Wire, um, and they definitely felt that they were an influence, even though that was sometimes hard to discern. But this is the first time that I was like, wow, I really, really hear. They the got it, yeah. Wire. <laughs> it was interesting that if 
finally emerged so far into their successful career. I just love the, the bizarre words. It's um, negative. It's just, just talking shit about like relationships and love and his vocals are great. And it's just mysterious and weird and definitely, you know, plays into this um, just bizarre strange Twin Peaks-ish. It's very film... You know, oh, again, that's... Like, very filmic, you know. You yeah, very cinematic, are, yeah. Very cinematic. Um, and I feel like it's, yeah, for sure, one of the songs that has held up the strongest, even though I think overall this album is really outstanding. Yeah, Twin Peaks is a good reference point. To Twin Peaks and Wire, that's that's true. Um, uh, the, this film is on, was released September 24th, 1991. The, uh, the album was released in early March. So it was about right. six months after, after the album was released seven months after the losing my religion single. As uh, far as that video goes too, I, I looked it up and the guy who directed it was Michael Stipe's art professor at university of Georgia, which is kind of interesting. Oh yeah. I sort of, I think he did a couple of, I think yeah, he did, he did a, a bunch of REM stuff. Well, but I, I, I like how the, the low builds up so slowly. It's just, it starts with just a guitar in his voice and then the organ comes on and it's, it's, but it's not like it's not real fast that comes on. It takes like a minute for the violins to even come up, and then the song, after half, it's halfway over, it opens up and almost turns into a different song. It, yeah, I like it a lot. Yeah, too. a lot of dynamics and, and yeah, tour de force build up in this song. Like really, what it where it comes to at the towards the end of the song, it's just amazing. Like yeah, and lyrically, what you brought up the talking shit about love, it kind of reminded me of. Uh, anthrax by gang of four where mm-hmm. where they're talking about uh well you've got you've got the the singing and then underneath you've got who is it was it hugo who was yeah talk. reading talking about how love songs are are uh a waste of time to write about <laughs> these days um and that's what the, with the i skipped the part about love it kind of seems to be making fun of love songs as well it's true as a subject although obviously they they continue to use that as a subject but uh, let's listen to it for people who are not familiar with it uh, here's peter's pick low 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 you and me we know about time we know how things go they come So since well we were originally going to have uh, two guests so Pat and I only each picked one song from one album um, and and I picked from this album uh, my pick was Half a World Away which we haven't talked about yet which I think is 
I don't know, maybe it's just comforting to me because it's it's the classic REM sound and, and what they really excelled at, the kind of uh, folk pop stuff, but with, again, more Baroque touches than they'd used before. I think there's, I think that's a fucking harpsichord in there, if I'm not mistaken. I would, I would say that you're correct. Yeah, but, and... Um, uh, Pat, we talked about it on the Bob Mold episode. The uh, the rhythm is kind of that uh, Brasilia cross with Trenton from Bob Mold's workbook, but this is more this is more catchy and and upbeat than that song, and um, almost like a almost like a sea shanty ish uh, rhythm to it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I I find that it feels a little bit frantic when I whenever I sus- this song starts, I feel a little bit stressed out because it feels like he's like. He's almost drowning. And he's, it. It's the way he's singing that yeah, makes it like frantic. Well, even it. even <laughs> yeah. before that, even the the music at the start, and then when he starts singing, it's even worse. But I love it. So, yeah, I think it's. I mean, there, as we've talked about many times on this podcast, what what REM really excels at in my mind is beauty. Like like most indie indie rock bands uh, have no. They they're not interested in creating something beautiful necessarily, and I think REM was, and I think this this is, and I also like all over this album, um, even though it was on their major label period, and Michael Stipe was enunciating clearly, the lyrics were still uh, abstract and impressionistic and and stream of consciousness, um, which I think was what hurt them later on when he started getting really. Uh, really specific in his lyrics, but at this point they're still doing these kind of lyrics, um, where like half of it sounds like he's making it up as he's singing it. I don't know. I just love this song, but uh, you guys are both fans as well. Yes, yeah. definitely. Okay. Yeah, I think you described it perfectly. Sea shanty, the sort of like again like really baroque um, musical arrangement works it isn't stupid it isn't it doesn't come off even as pretentious which i feel like the fact that they use so many strings and um unconventional instruments for a rock band of of any time um just really holds up it's it just shows that they were really smart about being creative it's true they were really smart i think that's a good point like they they never really did come off as pretentious which they could easily have done if they if they weren't as smart as they were yeah um well let's let's give people a listen here is half a world away my pick from at a time this could be the saddest dusk ever seen turn to a miracle I lie my mind is racing so it always will my hands tired my heart aches I'm half a world away here my head sworn to go to alone and hold it alone hold along hold Gone, life spent. 
too much to dream I didn't think I didn't think of you all right um well, when you're you're sticking shiny, happy people into your onto your album, no one's going to think you're pretentious. That's true. <laughs> That's very true. They may they may like think you're selling out, of course, something that was very serious at this moment in time. And in, in terms of music fans, um, abandoning bands probably more than they do now because you had to invest money, and you know you could buy a single, but if you bought an album, it was so much more. Well, obviously now you don't have to buy an album you can just stream it on youtube right you know you would be like us well yeah i don't want to foreshadow too much about what we're talking about (laughs) yeah well i was i was uh very pleasantly surprised re-listening to this i don't think i listened to this album all the way through in god knows how long um and i was really surprised at how except for the the two obvious exceptions how great it it still is for a major label act that was a a number one album yeah it's really true i mean it's so funny to look at the cd and it has really great artwork it also is very eclectic you know a fold out with a number of panels and these illustrations and another star a couple of star twins um art images a kind of stupid photo of rem um it's them in like a, a very browned field of grass field yeah yeah, and they're like, you know, they're wearing black and white. They're cool. Um, Michael Sipp has his arms open. It's really cheesy. Um, but, yeah, just even, like, looking at the CD as an object, I was like, wow, I just remember how how happy I was with this album and playing it to death like you did, Patrick. I mean, I played this a lot. Um, I, have one other, I have one funny thing to share about looking at the CD. So pre-internet age course you know you'd have to mail away to join a fan club or something and you know obviously michael and the band were so political um on the back of this cd um next to the track listing it says eco and there's like a logo for this thing called eco eco earth communications office to receive additional information on what you can do for the earth send two dollars to eco Century Park East, Los Angeles. I'm like, I love that there's no contextualization at all. It's me on the back cover of their album, which, as we also famously know, they had no working title for the album, and they're like, we're out of time for a title, so let's just call it Out of Time, which was, I thought, brilliant, too. I never heard that before. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, and it's also a, uh, well, although it has nothing to do with them, a it, it was a, a Rolling Stones song title. Oh, that's right. So yeah. Yeah. maybe going into uh, funny rock reference. history. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I speaking of the cover, it what reminded me of, and I just looked looked it up, and it actually came out after Out of Time, um, Octune Baby, um, with all the different panels and stuff. Yeah. On the cover, so you two was trying to get some, definitely trying to be hip with that album, and maybe taking a a page from REM's design. I'm glad we didn't get a naked photo of Michael Stipe. Like we did. <laughs> um, the cover, yeah, no, we got, well, at least we got him uh, topless in the Pop Song 89 <laughs> video. That uh, is a fantastic video, by the way. One of their best, yeah. yeah brilliant. Uh, all right, well, you guys want to take a quick break, and then we'll come back and talk about Automatic for the People? Sure. sure. Okay, uh, we'll be right back. We had a comrade, a brave comrade, he could talk for whole days, but then he tried to be a hero. 
Tried talking about Shamiro to computers wearing earphones. Oh. He almost died for conversation, hallucinations, good vibrations. Van Dyke Park's great racing, steeplechasing, the Reformation, transubstantiation, Brian Stucker's creation, the land of the Thracians, and right back to the start. It's gonna take some time and patience, but all the best things. Alright, we're back with uh, Automatic for the People, and um, oh, I should mention this is our. This is our last REM uh, album series. We'll, we'll do a wrap-up episode after this. But uh, these are the last two REM albums. Uh, so that we started doing. at the beginning and the end, and we're ending in the middle. Yeah. And Automatic for the People was obviously, uh, after after Out of Time, this one was going to be huge, too, just, just from coming after that one. And... Uh, it was uh, out of time was a number one album, Automatic for the People number two album, and uh, and then surprisingly they had another number one album with Monster. Even more surprisingly, I think uh, New Inven- New Adventures in Hi Fi was number two, and Up was number three. That is surprising. Jeez. Yeah, I can't believe that I really can't believe that. Um, now, I think Out of Time is a better album than Automatic for the People, but I think Automatic for the People has better individual songs. Yeah, I'm interested to hear your take on this album, Peter, after re-listening, because I know you, uh, well, again, I think there is, there's at least one song that I think is <laughs> terrible, um, but, but I, I, again, was pleasantly surprised listening to this one again, so I, I'd like to hear your take on it. You know, um, I, yeah, wow. <laughs> so, you know, Out of Time, huge album, really loved it, given the few faults it has, and again, thinking of MTV era of how important that was in terms of hearing new music and the videos and a band that I was now like really interested in, in terms of the visual side more than ever. Um, I remember when Drive was the first single, if I remember correctly. It was, yeah. Also a really weird choice. I agree. Very down tempo, very weird lyrics referencing David Essex's Rock On. Rock like on? I was like, that yep. is so fucking cool and bizarre. <laughs> Rock On is really one of the weirdest songs that was popular in the 70s. Um, so I remember seeing the video and I thought the video, you know, whatever. It was sort of of its moment showing the crowd surfing and um, yeah, the video is really beautiful. I mean, it's very simple and it was, I thought also like, oh, you know, given the place they're in right now, this is an interesting video. It's black and white. Like it's not doing anything that would be um, capitalizing on sort of this, what could be now seen as a sensationalism of the losing my religion video. And I thought that was a kind of a great, risky choice so i remember hearing that then the album came out i thought the album cover art again was really cool and interesting um and i remember bringing home the cd and and being very you know as we used to do also when we had less distractions listening it to start to finish and i was like okay drive is really great they open up the album with that second song try not to breathe and i had to pull up the song titles because i couldn't even remember i couldn't remember a lot of the song titles I was like, trying not to breathe is cool. Sidewinder sleeps tonight. Cute. A little, maybe a little fur away. Um, and then I got to the fourth song. Yeah. Which that's... is a song called Everybody Hurts. And I was like, holy shit. This is truly 
I already know the sellout song. This is going to be a single. This is going to be really popular. It's going to fucking drive me up the wall if I hear this, like, when I'm shopping at the um, Christides. I lived in New York at the time. If I hear it, like, in the, in the supermarket, like, I'm going to absolutely blow my fucking head off. And guess what? I was right. I mean, I knew that this was really, like, the planted mega hit because, you know, they're also on this record label that gave them millions of dollars to sign. And not to you know, be totally disrespectful to them. I mean, they're a business that, you know, at this point, this band became a business and it's not like the worst, it's not like, well, I would say it's the Hey Jude of R.E.M. Yes. I mean, it's, I think, probably the most unlistenable song in their entire catalog, even more so to me than Shiny Happy People. um, Because I would agree. Yeah. It's so just like cheesy, effusive, earnest i almost find it like almost self-righteous in its earnestness i agree oh god i can't stand it it definitely i mean maybe he's maybe he's singing it from his heart but it seems somewhat calculated like you said um because i think i think i've talked about this on the podcast before pat i think it kind of started with with or without you the obviously the hair metal bands had their power ballads but i think that was the the start of the uh, alternative, although U2 wasn't alternative, but for lack of a better word, um, like arena ballad. And then everybody had to start doing them. I mean, U2 does one on every album now to this day. And uh, that's what this felt like to me. They're kind of a uh, version of one or something. Mm-hmm. But the, yeah, the lyrics are way too, uh, too emo 13 year old <laughs> to really take seriously, which is the the sad thing is i think musically it's not terrible no not at all like it's definitely got kind of like that um otis redding stacks mm-hmm. kind of sound the the guitar which i think uh bill berry came up with the the guitar line for it um or the melody um but yeah then the the lyrics just uh sink it straight into the toilet what what do you think of everybody hurts pat i have no problem with it i don't especially like it but i like how his voice sounds on it and i don't the the simple 13-year-old lyrics don't bother me. So it's it's not my least favorite R.E.M. song. I don't know what that would be, but it's not that. I, I think it's not even the the teen lyrics so much as, as Peter said, the... Uh, Calculating. Ca- may, yeah, not even... Made to be listened to many times. Part, I guess I don't pick up on that so much. Partly that and partly just the, uh, the sincerity of lyrics that are kind of uh, trite. Yes, incredibly yeah. trite. I mean, I just think Michael Stipe really believes that kind of thing. So it's, I guess that's why it works for me because I don't find them. to you. Yeah. yeah. It seems like something Michael Stipe would actually really think and believe. And as I said, he might be uh, perfectly authentic and it might not be calculated at all, but I still, I still don't like it. That's yeah. It just doesn't work for me. Um, surprisingly, uh, no, no top ten hits from this album. Even "Everybody Hurts" was a uh, number twenty-nine. "Man on the Moon" wasn't a top. I, I thought "Man on was... the Moon" was a number thirty. "Drive" was higher than both of them at number twenty-eight. Really? Wow. Yeah, "Man on the Moon" was played a lot too. It really was. I was surprised "Drive" was so high in the U.S. I I agreed with you, uh, Peter, when I first heard "Drive." I was like, "This is another weird choice for a first single." And for a while, uh, it took a while to click. But after I um, kind of listen to the lyrics especially i was like oh this is this is a genius song this is a song basically about how 
rock and roll has ceased to function as any form of rebellion. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's very mocking in a way. Hey, kids, rock and roll. Nobody tells you where to go. Like, it, <laughs> it's very mocking about uh, the idea that rock music can can have that effect anymore in the culture. Um, not, not only that, but the, the lyrics really don't match with the music. It's like the lyrics are, are a fun 50s doo-wop song or whatever, but the, the, the music is so low and depressing. Yeah, it's a great song. And uh, I want to put in a word for um, John Paul Jones's uh, orchestration on this album too, which I think is, is excellent throughout. You know, I did not... John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin. Yes, is who you're talking about. I had no, I, I had no idea. I didn't remember that. Yeah, he did the arrangements. That's really well. Yeah, we don't want to go into Led Zeppelin territory here, but um, because I do bizarrely love them, um, maybe that's not bizarre. But that's really cool that he was involved. I did not know that. Well, yeah, and I think, uh, I think I know at least Peter Buck and Mike Mills were big Led Zeppelin fans as well. Right. Um, so I'm sure they were thrilled to work with him. I can do without the first four Led Zeppelin albums entirely. I, I, I'm like backwards from most Led Zeppelin fans where I feel like they didn't get interesting until their later work. Um, mm. I'll have to give you the remastered Led Zeppelin 3 so you can listen to that. Oh, again. I've got it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Despite what I just said, I do, I do still get that stuff. Yeah, but, yeah. But yeah, I think Drive, and I was reading, uh, it's funny, reading on Wikipedia that uh, Scott Litt said that um, the arrangement of Drive was inspired by Queen. Huh. Yeah, he said uh, Peter and Mike are big Queen fans, um, and he said uh, Queen records for all their bombast sounded like each player had a personality. Um, so yeah, that's that's interesting. I think it's, I think it's one of R.E.M.'s best songs at this point in my life, Drive. Uh, yeah, I would I would vote for it in the top ten. So yeah, I think so. Classic song. What do you think, Pat? Yeah, it's great. Well, it's all right. Then let's listen to it. Here is a uh, drive, the first single and strangely highest charting single from this album. Here you go. Hey, hey kids, where are you? Nobody tells you what to do. Maybe you're crazy in the head Maybe you did, maybe you walked Maybe you rocked around the clock Tick, tock, Tell us who 
All right, and maybe the highest charting had to do with uh, just that it was the first one released after At A Time and, and everybody was crazy for new REM product. Um, but it does seem strange that Man on the Moon and Everybody Hurts were not bigger hits than this one. It's funny because I think, you know, for sure, um, those two songs, Everybody Hurts and Man on the Moon, definitely have lived in perpetuity in supermarket you know yes playlists i mean you never hear drive nope you never ever hear drive but you definitely hear definitely man on the moon i'd say probably is the song that gets the most played from this album at this point yeah it's strange they did two um like greatest hits albums um after their their warning years they did the in time the best of rem and then they did uh their their career retrospective uh part lies part truth part garbage part hard or whatever it's called and um Neither one of them had drive. Weird on it. That's so, but they both had man on the moon. Both had man on the moon, yeah. and and everybody hurts. Um, huh. They did really. I think so. God. Okay. I'm gonna have to look up in time, but I'm I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah. Anyway, the so overall, this album, re-listening to it, Peter. Um, aside from everybody hurts, uh, did it did it click with you? So yeah. So um, having just re-listened to it, I really I have not heard this album since probably gosh i don't even know what i don't even know what year um sorry the really terrible thing is everybody hurts i despise it so much i ended up selling the cd back probably within the first couple months of it coming. just because of that song yeah like i really really disliked it so much and i was like oh they've like i maybe they've sold out like this is it and it's just so um I felt like it was, it's funny, like, I thought the album was a bit overproduced at the time, and that was definitely, you know, something I really did not like in a lot of musical artists, um, unless it was, like, electronic music, and I felt that that made sense. Um, Listening to it again, this is a pretty, I mean, it's ridiculous, like, I'm anybody, I'm just a a, a major music fan, and this is one of their, you know, most respected and best-selling albums. It totally is understandable. It's a really, really great album. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this, you know, after 20-something years. Um, I still have trouble with Night Swimming. I think it's, again, just one of those things where in, it's not like Everybody Hurts. I don't think it's unlistenable. And I know, John, that you love this song because we've talked about I it do, before. and we Yeah, we will um, talk about it on this episode. Yeah, I mean, I think that this musical moment, and I also have to, like, think about where was I in terms of my musical obsessiveness in this moment in time. And at this moment in time, Peter Perez was really into shoegaze music. My Bloody Valentine. I was really into My Bloody Valentine. I was really into The Pale Saints, a band that is totally forgotten that I absolutely adored. I love them too. I was really into Unrest and like Red House Painters first album maybe came out around this time. You know, I had been a huge Pixies fan. I mean, I was totally like the 4AD guy. And, um, you know, I just felt like this was maybe just too, it took like out of time a step higher in terms of the um, mainstream precision and the, and the perfection. I mean, they obviously had truly become these perfectionist um, musical artists. So I dismissed this album in a massive way, in a massive way. It's like kind of absurd when I listen <laughs> to it again. And I remember like, you know, reading about the album coming out and the Fuck Me Kitten, they had to rename it Star Me Kitten. That like pissed me off too. I was like, oh, because, you know, they want to sell the album in Walmart. That was, you know, one of the reasons why they could not call it right. Fuck Me Kitten was so that it could get stocked in mainstream 
record retailers. So of course I was like, oh, that's a sellout. That sucks. But then of course there's a song about Montgomery Cliff, and I'm like, oh, but like Michael's again, like openly referencing like homosexual a culture. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it was like I was very conflicted, and I was like bummed. But listening again. I think this is, you know, I'm like, wow, I need to own this album. Like, I definitely would go back now and revisit it and listen to it. I would listen to it repeatedly. I'd probably skip over everybody. I mean, I definitely would skip over Everybody Hurts and probably Night Swimming. But Man on the Moon, to just jump ahead in this in the sequence of songs, um, that's a really, like, that song weirdly has this, um, I mean, I'm sure it does for a lot of people, has a weird emotional effect on me. It, you know, some music has. Like, it ma- It like makes me get, like, cheesily goosebumpy and makes me kind of a little bit sobby. I mean, I don't actually outwardly cry. No, it, yeah. It, like, strikes, like, a weird emotional chord, yeah. chord in me. Because, of course, I also loved Andy Kaufman. So did yeah. I. And Yeah, I, I, I think that works for anyone who's a big Andy Kaufman. Yeah, yeah. it's, like, weird that that song can still do it. It's uh, that's one of the amazing things about them. I th- I'm glad you said that that it's an emotional song for you because it is basically a song about Andy Kaufman. And uh, I mean, it was such a big deal about Andy Kaufman. They made they named a movie after it, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. And got REM to do the soundtrack music for it. Um, but but yeah, it is. Weird, and it's the same thing with Night Swimming. Uh, even though you're not a fan, I love that Night Swimming. Is uh, it's another one that makes me, you know, sobby, and it's very emotional. And I love that he made it about uh, skinny dipping. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, it's, video too. I mean, a video is beautiful. Yeah, it's the opposite of everybody hurts to me because it's not the, you know, the the lyrical content is so much smarter in mm-hmm. night swimming. And I, well, we'll talk about night swimming in a minute. But uh, but yeah, no, I agree with that. Uh, with the man on the moon, and um, and it's it's one that they've chosen as their anthem one of their anthems as well because i think they they pretty much ended all their shows with man on the moon um for the last the last few tours i'd probably say man on the moon is my favorite song from this cd i think really i think so mm-hmm. well i was yeah i was um i really love uh, I, I mean agree. late swimming is awesome too i do like that but i i'm not sure it'd be one of those two go ahead sorry um I agree on re-listening. Well, it's funny, Peter, how how you change as you get older. Like I, I was kind of the same way with with all the sellout stuff, and like you know, you you got to get into Walmart. But then you you get older, and you realize like it it's not an attack on your identity for them to do this stuff. <laughs> Completely, yeah. And it's funny how you take it personally. Yeah, and and um, people in Middle America should be able to listen to the music as well. You know, I mean, you can be. I mean, I'm never going to shop in Walmart in my life, and you can still be, you know, kind of snobby about what it represents. But like, there are still there are people who are living in towns with no other options, you know. Yeah, I was I was the opposite when I was a kid. I I could never understand you guys who didn't want them to sell out. I was like, I want them to sell out. I want to be able to get lots of their good stuff because they're awesome. <laughs> well, it, but it's not like there were anybody was having any trouble picking up REM albums. At this no, point. but I wanted I wanted anything that I liked. I wanted. To, them to sell out like i wanted the calvin and hobbs guy to sell out i wanted him to make stuffed animals i just i liked my artists to make lots and lots of money <laughs> well again i don't think uh i don't think bill waterson or rem was ever hurting for money at, at this point um i wanted them in castles <laughs> but the, the the album is very uh yeah it's very overall um uh 
not I don't want to say mellow, but a sub, more subdued musically. Um, so it's, it was in its way kind of um, kind of subversive considering what was going on because this was uh, this was post uh, Nevermind, Nirvana, and right. and grunge was coming up, and this was kind of um, the exact opposite of that. But I was surprised listening to it. Some songs that hadn't hadn't made a huge impression on me uh before that well i'd actually sweetness follows um i had never i was like yeah whatever uh but i saw them play it live once and and uh, it gave me goosebumps for whatever reason and uh listening to it now i'm like that's a really great song Monty got a raw deal is a is a really interesting song yeah yeah i would agree um and starmy kitten is almost shoegazy it's got yeah. like that gauzy sound you know gauzy. yeah um ignore lands a bit you know whatever i think that's more the most throwaway song on the album um but well P- pat let's talk about your pick um you pick oh wait we didn't yeah. do a nice oh okay yeah that's next sorry yeah you you uh you picked uh sidewinder sleeps tonight i didn't have a real good reason to pick it i just wanted to give you a choice and that was the last song I listened to. The thing I like about it is that it's so goofy. It's just like goofy fun song. It's not. It's just a goofy fun rock song. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, I like the the story I read a long time ago that Michael Stipe liked. He laughed at himself saying Dr. Seuss in the song because he was pronouncing Dr. Seuss wrong, and I didn't understand it because I always thought that was how you pronounce Dr. Seuss. So. Yeah, I think he was saying like Dr. Zeus. It was how he was. He yeah, kept but it's, saying it, but... it's supposed to say Dr. Seuss, which I didn't find out until I read that interview. Oh, oh, right. He, you're supposed to say Dr. Soy, soy, it's like short for soy sauce. Which exactly. nobody says Dr. Seuss. <laughs> the, uh, no, I like it. It's a, it's again, another one where I think, uh, John Paul Jones orchestration is really awesome. Um, I like the, I like the, there's kind of like discordant strings, going along with the peppy music uh which is really interesting it's like a it, it kind of plays into the way um michael stipe and mike mills will often sing counter to each other um and it does it musically here um and then they have the middle of the song where michael stipe is just it's like he wants to get all the words out so he's kind of screaming them <laughs> yeah and no i i don't know if it's ever been defini- definitively established what he's saying in the chorus call me in to try to wake her up i don't know who the hell knows? call me when you try to wake her yeah, um, but it sounds like Carmelita or something. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's a. I I enjoy it. It's it's um, kind it's kind of a trifle, but also uh, it's got some. I think this the uh, like I said, the orchestration gives some heft to it um, musically that it needs. And Peter, like you said, you you think it's just kind of a a kind of a throwaway pop song. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the thing that I'm just looking up some information about when this album came out, it's pretty shocking that this came out less than a year and a half after Out of Time. Yeah. I wonder how much of this material was also developed around, if there was anything that was developed around the same time. Um, Because it's really high quality stuff. (laughs) I'm like, I'm now kind of just like in shock of how much, how prolific they were at this moment. Well... it probably a, it probably helped that they didn't tour at a time. Right, right. They didn't tour. That's right. Or automatic, for that matter. Yeah. 
Oh, I didn't realize I didn't tour for the song either. Yeah, damn. Um, it's pretty just shocking overall quality. Like, just that's one of those things that just really impressed me listening through the album. Actually, the, the one the one song that um, just going back in the sequence of songs that I really enjoyed is New Orleans Instrumental Number One. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty nice. Fantastic. <laughs> that was also one of those things where you're like, wow, they 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 could do that. Like. They could they could throw that on there, and um, the record company was totally fine with it. And maybe there was a discussion around like, oh no, that's just like filler and it's weird. But that they had elevated themselves to such a high status along the lines of U two at this point um, that they could do what they wanted, and it's really great. It is, yeah. It's another I'm one that, by it. that I uh, you know I skipped when it initially I would listen. Um, but yeah, no, it is it is really strong and. Uh, well, I, I also wanted to say you were talking about, um, oh, maybe it was during the break, actually, but you, you were talking about uh, R.E.M. covering Wire and, you know, giving them some, some recognition and money from doing that. And uh, I, the B-side to, I think, Man on the Moon, they covered uh, Robin Hitchcock, which I thought was also nice. Um, they'd also obviously had a long association with him and, and had right. played on his albums as well. What, but, what Robin Hitchcock song? I don't know that. Uh, it, Arms of Love. Oh wow! Yeah, not the greatest Robin Hitchcock song, no. but uh, it's really cool. But at least, yeah, they got him some money for that. Um, all right, well let's let's give a listen to your pick, Pat. Here is Sidewinder sleeps tonight. This was our uh, our person who couldn't be here's pick, but it would have been mine if I had picked from the album. And uh, apparently, a kind of divisive song, according to Peter. Uh, but but night swimming. <laughs> I just think I just think it's again it's the beauty thing. I think it's a beautiful song. And uh, number two to uh, tonight we fly by the Divine Comedy in my mind as as far as just beautiful pop songs and i don't i don't really know what else to say about it as i already mentioned it's about um skinny dipping and but still able to cause that emotional response in me um 
Pat, what do you think? Yeah, I love it. I love that it starts with the, the little orchestra thing and then just goes into it's so stark with just a piano and his voice until the end. It's it's beautiful. It's great. Yeah, got some piccolo or whatever going through there. and Pretty strong imagery, too. If you just listen to it and close your eyes, you can kind of feel like you're swimming. Yeah. Maybe that's just me. And out in the Georgia woods. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why I'm so on. <laughs> I, I, it's, you know, that's the the craziness with, with music and how, sub, I mean, every art form is subjective in terms of how people respond to it or not. And something about it, like, it's just too... There, there is like it's got some beautiful, you know, suggested imagery in the lyrics for sure. The lyrics are very pretty. They're obviously really thought out in terms of their they're simple yet they really evoke a place. Um, there's just something a little too sweet for me. It's odd, and I like sweet things, and I like happy, but I'd like non-happy more, <laughs> or mixed message happy, which is why I think that, you know, it just doesn't, it isn't anywhere in the realm of every everybody hurts, but um, at all, but there's just something that just never really connected with me. For yeah, well, I mean, there's strange. nothing wrong with that. It's strange to me because it seems it seems kind of a bittersweet song to me, um, yeah, more than strange. straight up happy. But you know, I had I tried really fucking hard to get into the Grateful Dead, yes. and uh, I bought like their first five albums or something because I had a friend who was really like, "Oh, you just you're not getting it," you know. And and I listened to him and I was like, "Nope, I get it. I just don't like it." Like. So I, th- I thought they were, they were more a live thing. I didn't think you could really get it if you're just listening to recordings. I guess, but I've, I've, I've heard them live, too. I mean, it's the same thing with Fish. Yeah. Everybody, I, I don't know. There's no problem with not liking something. No, totally. Yeah. I think in the overall musical canon of R.E.M. to this point, for me, there's very little. It's this point in my life now that I've rediscovered a automatic for the people um that i would say i really find repugnant and i would never want to listen to it so yeah this is just one of those ones that just doesn't really strike a chord for me it's yeah really yeah no, try try listening to around the sun you might add a couple more to your list <laughs> yeah that's... i don't think i've ever i haven't listened to that album <laughs> well i've never heard it it's uh not listening to it is almost the same as listening to it gosh now i really want to listen to it <laughs> <laughs> sounds intriguing but um well the the problem with around the sun is that um is that it's so boring it's not even terrible you know yeah you wouldn't add them to your list you just forget about them once you stop listening to it what was i doing yeah it's so odd that they could have gone to that point they came back after that they did much better work that was just that was definitely a low low point Yeah. yeah Well, um, I think I'll probably just throw uh, Night Swimming on at the end of the episode and play the whole thing, uh, just to just to bug Peter. <laughs> Putting it at the end is very considerate, actually. Thank you. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, the, uh, for, for a band at this level um, that they were at for these two albums, this, this is really overall very strong music like it looking at the charts oh we didn't even look at uh 1992 we usually don't but you should yeah yeah 
Yeah, it's the last. It's the last REM episode. Why not? Uh, End of the road, boys to men. Baby got back, of course. Mm. Sir Mix a lot. Jump by Criss Cross. Hey, uh, I'm not gonna. I actually like Jump. That was a great song. Great um, video too. So that's Our Christopher Cross. That's yeah. That's Christopher Cross in his later years. He shortened it to Chris. <laughs> um, uh, not a great song or video. Save the best for last by Vanessa Williams. Um, TLC baby. Oh God, Eric Clapton, Tears in Heaven. Uh, no comment. Yeah. Is that well, for the? Is that the song he wrote for the sun he threw out the window? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Way to exploit your tragedy there, Eric. That's shocking. Yeah. You never, should be in prison for that anyway. Uh, he, was, he was never known for being tasteful. No. Um, oh, en vogue or en vogue, if you're f- Francais, uh, my love and you're never going to get it. Another, you know what? It's a good fucking song. Great I think. song. Yeah. I will give you that. Yeah. Uh, ugh, red hot chili peppers under the bridge. Jesus. Um, I can't even. Yeah. Yeah. No, no I can't can talk either. a half an hour about that. <laughs> <laughs> the vitriol. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right said Fred. I'm too sexy. Black or white. I'm too sexy was then. I I thought that was earlier. 92. 90, maybe it came out in 91 and didn't chart until 90. Yeah, I don't remember. Um, Michael Jackson, Black or White, uh, Achy Breaky Heart. About what you'd expect. Ooh, Guns N' Roses, November Rain. Yes. So uh, Nirvana did make the list this year, um, as did U2 twice with Mysterious Ways and One. Uh, Nirvana came in at number 32 for the year. Um, but yeah, so I, I think... Just even in the general musical climate of, of hit albums, this stands out. Nirvana, obviously another one uh, from that time that, that still holds up and had some actual musical integrity. But but I prefer R.E.M., to be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I guess I guess we're, we're done. I didn't mention to you, Peter, um, we usually do... Uh, well, we haven't been doing it for these REM episodes, but uh, we usually do some kind of recommendation, some kind of pop culture recommendation. Mm-hmm. So if you've got anything, anything could be old or new that you've enjoyed recently that you want to share, uh, let us know. Mm-hmm. Yes, let me think really quickly. Gosh, what have I been enjoying? I mean, you know, it's not going to come as a surprise, John, since we talk a lot about music here and there. You know, just an album that I've been really uh, holding on to and really going back to so far this year. And I have to say this year compared to last year, I'm not feeling like there's been as many amazing releases as I thought there was in 2013. Nope. I agree. It's really not been as strong, but the one album that I've really been loving deeply is the wild beast album. Um, Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I just think that that it's a grower. I mean, I think that I, you know, it's a band that I've really liked since their first album and they've, change and evolved a lot but um just a band that really you know kind of takes the best elements of sort of experimental pop music you could probably think of big band like our uh, radiohead as being an influence on them probably i'm sure but you know incorporating electronic music more uh, electronic elements into their music more over time without it completely quashing what they were like all about from the start which is like kind of baroque weird histrionic very kind of flamboyant yes. uh, music um but i feel like they've tempered that in a not like to kill it off but they still have that but without it being maybe as as abrasive as it was in the beginning it's a really beautiful album definitely uh yeah i i agree i uh 
on my best of mixes, I put two of the songs from that album on there. Yeah. On those, so yeah, that's a good that's a good one. Pat, do you do you have anything, or you want to not do a uh, recommendation for the this? I don't episode? have anything. I'm fine with. Or we we had a tradition of not doing it for these, so I'm fine with that. Okay. Yeah. Good. Then I don't have to come up with anything either. Um, Brilliant. All right. Well, I guess uh, I guess that takes care of this episode. Pat, you want to give the uh, spiel? Oh, uh, write to us at popculturecontinuum at gmail.com if you'd like to be on the show, if you have any ideas of what we should talk about. Like us on Facebook, rate us highly on iTunes, tell your friends to listen, and, oh, watch us on Tumblr. Oh, yeah, we're on Tumblr now, so whatever. It's like Stitcher to me. I don't even, I don't deal with those things, but I know we're, we're on them. But I mean, uh, it doesn't have a vowel you don't like. I, I, yeah, this is not Wales. Yeah. Um. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Peter. It was, it was very fun. Super appreciate it. It was very fun. Yeah. Yeah. And, thanks so much. And you, uh, you talking uh, reined in our natural stupidity, so that's always that's always a plus. <laughs> if you ever want to come back, you're welcome. Yeah. I would love to. Okay. Well, then uh, until next time, we'll say goodbye, everybody. Bye, goodbye. Guys. Thank you. Thought you knew me, 
underneath my breath Night swimming Quiet night Deserves a quiet night